0: Is one of the great things about being Africadian, African Nova Scotian. Our culture, our community, no matter what the oppression and the racism and the apartheid, what made our community special is the fact that we had communities, we had land, we had homes, we had neighbors who had the same struggles you had, who could share their resources with you, who shared your faith. And all of a sudden, you've got this distinct lifestyle that is linked to where you actually
1: live. That's George Eliot Clark, Canada's former Poet Laureate and author of Where Beauty Survived, an Indian memoir. He's our guest on this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. I'm David McGuffin. A big welcome back to all you explorers out there, armchair and in motion. It was 75 years ago this month that Black Nova Scotian Viola Desmond was arrested for refusing to leave her seat in the whites-only section of a movie theater in New Glasgow, Nova Scotia. Her brave individual protest would go on to inspire later generations who would push for an end to the racist structures that limited the lives of a black community that's existed in Nova Scotia and the Maritime Provinces for centuries. Our guest today, George Elliott Clark, is intimately familiar with that world. He has family roots that stretch back centuries to the earliest days of Black Nova Scotia. He grew up in a community that he calls Africadia. And today we'll explore Africadia with George through the prism of his remarkable family. As well as being an award-winning poet and former Poet Laureate of Canada, George Elliot Clark is a professor at the University of Toronto and a fellow of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. George Elliot Clark, welcome to the Explore podcast.
0: It is so great to be a guest for this podcast, David. Yeah, but it's good to see you.
1: Yeah, no, really great to see you. So I, I loved the book. I really did. I was, uh, and It was nice to romp through that sort of territory. And, and through a, really, I mean, I lived, in, I lived in Nova Scotia, and there's a lot about that that I think I and like a lot of white people just didn't know about, you know?
0: Yeah, I had an, a note from uh, a gentleman who now lives in Toronto who, is from Halifax Mm -hmm. and he wrote me last week to say that he really liked the book a lot. And, and also that, that uh, it brought back a lot of memories for him, but he also said what you just said. And he's, and he's from Halifax that he had never realized just how much pressure the black community was under.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, Not his fault and not his fault that he didn't, that he didn't know about that. But but uh, just the fact that the way everything was structured, mm-hmm. that we had to do our best to, of course, survive and hope to prosper under that system. Yeah. Uh. And that and that others could afford to be completely oblivious. Yeah. Uh, to to that.
1: Yeah. Obviously, I mean, we talked about this earlier. I, you know, was at King's doing journalism and covered the North End for a local newspaper, which I think succeeded your local newspaper there, which is nice to have that handshake over time. Yeah. 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 At that point too, there was a lot going on about Africville and reparations for Africville. And so I I did understand that history a bit. The things that actually stood out to me as someone coming from Ontario moving down there were, this is mid-90s, black people being asked for three pieces of ID to get into dance bars. Mid nineties. And I remember actually having a conversation with an older woman who said, we talked about the slave mentality of the local black population, you know, and Mm -hmm. this is why they can't get jobs. It shocked me. Yeah. yeah. But that was your world. 75 years ago, this month, Viola Desmond was arrested in a movie theater in New Glasgow, Nova Scotia for refusing to leave her seat in the whites only section. Right. Which I mean, amazing that that existed, that kind of apartheid existed in Canada. Not to put an age on you, George, but that was just 14 years before you were born. And I'm just wondering how much that world was real to you as a child growing up.
0: David, that's such a, a great question, uh, truly. And I had really only vague impressions of the, an outer world where discrimination happened as a boy growing up. Of course, I have the protection of childhood. Everything's all fairy tales and magic powers and superheroes and, and so on. So I... I, I was at a, at a, somewhat of a remove from the actual pressures of discrimination and prejudice and bigotry and so on. But my parents, of course, were not. And so because of their experiences, some of that outer local world of coping with uh, discrimination, um, uh, racialization, and so on, did intrude. Into my childhood home and consciousness, for that matter. So, uh, your question makes me uh, think about it a couple of moments that I discuss in uh, the memoir. But the most important one, and the, and the one that was most searing, and the one that was really represented my introduction to the, the whole area of reaction and and uh, and struggle and repercussions and so on, was I was four years old. It was uh, probably spring, May, maybe June, spring, warm enough for my brothers and I to play outside in front of our home, which is uh, 117 St. Margaret's Bay Road uh, uh, in Halifax. And and so we're playing outside, and three white boys uh, were coming up the road, and they were older than us. Uh, As I say, we were four, three, and two. At the time, my brothers and I, and and they must have been five, six, seven, or somewhere in that bailiwick. So they were older than us, and they were carrying their school bags or school books and, and so on. And as they approached us, they began to pick up rocks and throw them at us. The uh, hurled rocks didn't hit any of us, as far as I recall. And, they, and the, the force behind them was not great, because we are talking about just you know young children, boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nevertheless, they were throwing rocks at us, and the N word was coming at us at the same time. I was the oldest, and uh, so I thought it was incumbent upon me to act as the protector of my brothers and pick up those rocks and throw them back, along with the N word. And I'd like to think, as an adult, that they might have been slightly surprised that they might also have been the N word, <laughs> uh, along with, of course, trying to duck my very feebly thrown uh, pebbles and stones and, and and so on anyway there was enough of a ruckus that my father came to the door of the of our home because he worked nights and he was home my mom was was uh, out teaching uh, during the day uh, so he was home and, and and he'd probably been napping and he came out and when he heard that this, the commotion and, and shooed the uh, the white, children away, told them to go home or what have you, and then called us inside. And I immediately thought that I was in trouble. My father was very much a disciplinarian. It was one of the problems I had with him, especially once I was older. And so I was worried. I somehow knew that just having said that word, that there was something about it that was a problem and and that I could be in for a licking because I was the oldest and I should somehow know better. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not what happened. Instead, uh, and of course, this is like just so crystal clear in my in my memory. My father sat us down in front of a mirror or he brought a mirror out, a full length mirror, if I remember, properly, and set it in front of us. And and we were sitting on a sofa, I think, the three of us, our little feet dangling probably over the edge. And, and uh, he told us he also brought out two sugar bowls, one with brown sugar, one with white sugar. He told us look at ourselves in the, in the mirror and then he said you're brown see you're brown like the brown sugar looking at you know we're saying yes daddy that's right the three of us in unison yes daddy right. we're, yeah we are We are brown boys here we see that now very clearly and then he said those boys were white like the white sugar see the white sugar and then we're like white like that and we're like yeah yeah right that makes perfect sense thank you and then he went on to say uh, some white people White sugar people don't like brown sugar people, and you should not use the word that they used. So that's a long, you know, answer, uh, and even it's still only a partial answer mm-hmm. to your great question. But that was my first inkling that there was this something that we possessed—color—that um, uh, at least superficially marked us, marked us as different, but also made us unlikable by people who were colored white um and there were other instances for instance uh at one point this is i also mentioned this in the memoir my 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 mom and my two brothers and i we were we were coming home from church it was a sunday and we had a taxi for whatever reasons our our father wasn't with us but we took a taxi out to where we lived taxi driver was white um and, and in those days, as you'll recall, David, mm-hmm. I think you'll recall, the cars, everybody smoked. My parents didn't smoke, but everybody else did. So anyway, the cars all had the little ash tray in the armrests even and, and a little lid with a spring on it that, you, that would spring up so you could stub out your cigarette and so on or leave your ashes there in the, in the little tray on the armrest. Now, my brother, Bill, who might have been four years old at, at the time, was playing with the spring action lid of the ashtray on the armrest of the, of the uh, taxi cab. And, and it was annoying, I suppose, for the taxi driver. And he leaned around and slapped my brother's fingers. Now, my mom was right there. She was in the front seat, sitting beside the gentleman, the taxi driver. He could have asked her, could you ask him and your son to not play with the ashtray lid and so on? You know. He could have, but he didn't. He just instinctively just reached around and slapped my brother's fingers. Now, that was assault, pure and simple. And my mother and my father, for that matter, were not willing to let that go lightly. My father took the taxi driver to court. My father was successful in in essentially ensuring that uh, the taxi driver understood that he had committed an offense the judge, as far as I can remember, asked my father if, if uh, he would be satisfied perhaps with an apology or, I don't know, maybe some funds right. or whatever. But whatever the penalty was or, or could have been, my father said no, that he wasn't interested in, in receiving restitution, per se, for the offense, but that he wanted the taxi driver to recognize that what he had done was totally incorrect. And I suppose an apology was in order as well. So those two instances in my childhood, in my boyhood, were those moments where the outside world, the larger world of racial discrimination actually impinged on, on myself. But I really didn't become consciously or really aware of my existence within a world That was racially defining me and marginalizing me and my brothers and others like us until I was more towards my teens. Because that's when the discrimination became pointed and personal. Because once I became a teen, I now become an economic threat and a sexual threat. For those who want to perceive uh, black people or black men or black young men, black males in general... Uh, from those standpoints. Uh, and so then I was going to have to be controlled and policed, literally policed, uh, to ensure that that whatever threat I represented would never actually, uh, be actualized or mean harm yeah. uh, for anyone from mainstream society.
1: I mean, the incredible stories about your father, in both those cases, um, and the, both your parents are, are larger than life characters in this book. Absolutely. Like you, you can see how they produced a poet. Um, <laughs> uh, and I, I just, you, they're, they're both from different backgrounds within the black community in Nova Scotia. It's a community you've coined a word for it, Africadia. And I'm just wondering for listeners, if you can explain what Africadia is to you.
0: David, thank you so much for that. I came up with that term because I thought it was important that we, black Nova Scotians of historical presence, uh, holding land, and having formed communities, many anchored by a church and usually a Baptist church, have some means of demarcating ourselves that was different from the newly arriving immigrant population, black immigrant population, mainly from the West Indies, mainly from the Caribbean, some from African America, where most of us originally are from uh, in terms of our lineages uh, and history, and then very few from Africa itself. So here's the dilemma. We are all Black people. We're all from Africa at one point or another. But those of us who had been in Nova Scotia for 200 plus years, who had come up through the segregation, discrimination, the apartheid settlement of the province, so that black settlements were almost always located on the worst, the poorest land, on very small allotments, next door to larger, much more prosperous, much more landed in terms of having much more land and agricultural land, especially to work with mm-hmm. um, white communities. Uh, so we were assigned, our ancestors were assigned these hard scrabble lots often without even being given title to the, to those lots, and expected to do whatever they could to survive. And what that meant, what survival meant was they could put up uh, homes that to the larger society looked like shacks, looked like huts, but for the black community were homes, really well-built and comfortable homes for ourselves, our ancestors, but to survive economically they had to go into, walk into, ride a horse into, take a cart into, catch a bus into, whatever, the larger white community. Again, it was an apartheid settlement from the very beginning. Larger white town, black village a few miles away. And so the black villagers would have to go into the white town. And sometimes there were laws that said you had to be out of town by sundown, especially if you were a black man. And that was true of New Glasgow, where Viola Desmond was arrested in 1946, and it was also true of a town uh, called Digby, Nova Scotia. Uh, their law, uh, re- they were called sunset laws or sundown laws, um, which uh, their laws uh, was not changed or wasn't stricken from the books until 1967, probably the same for New Glasgow. And these laws were actually enforced, but I shouldn't get away from the question you asked me, which is why Africadia. So I'm explaining it in the sense that we had that very specific historical origin in Nova Scotia from the very beginning. And, and the uh, first major black arrivals uh, coming from the United States arrived as slaves. And these were a people who came in in 1760 with the so-called planters. Mm-hmm. And the planters were Amer Well, they weren't really Americans yet because the United States had not been born yet. But they were really (laughs) Americans one generation later, they're going to have the revolution. So they were basically Americans and they were coming from, uh, the South and also from new England. And of course, slavery was legal everywhere at that, at that point when they, when they arrived. So they brought hundreds of slaves with them essentially to the Annapolis Valley. And of course to Halifax when they arrived to take up the lands of the exiled Acadians, uh, in 1760. Um, so that was the first major population of, of blacks in Nova Scotia, not counting Fortress Louisburg under Nouvelle France, where they also had a uh, 100 or so, uh, maybe more, uh, enslaved black people connected to Fortress Louisburg in Cape Breton. The historical black Nova Scotia population, dating back to 1760, and then the Black loyalists' arrival 1783, and then the Black refugees arriving from the War of 1812, 1812, 1816, and then a group of West Indians who ended up in Cape Breton, Lace Bay, Sydney area in the early 20th century. Our experience in Nova Scotia makes us different from all of the other Black people arriving as immigrants later on. Mm-hmm. beginning essentially in the 1950s. So even though we can say that, yes, we are all Black people together, yes, we all support Pan-Africanism, yes, we, we, are, we recognize that we are part of the diaspora, we also have developed a different, separate culture in Nova Scotia. We are Black Nova Scotians, but then so are people who come from Nigeria and Jamaica and the United States and Cote d'Ivoire and Senegal uh, and Sierra Leone once they get to Nova Scotia and they stay there for six months, they're also black Nova Scotians. They're also African Nova Scotians. So I came up with Africadian Mm. as a way to demarcate us as specific cultural group of black people landed in Nova Scotia for centuries and governments and universities in Nova Scotia use the problematic phrase for the same reason, to demarcate our experiences separate from Black newcomers and their experiences. They use the phrase indigenous Black, and that's a phrase that Rocky Jones, who was my mentor, mm-hmm. invented in the 1970s, for the same reason, to, to demarcate our experience as different, not superior, not better, just different, and culturally specific. Of course, that phrase Indigenous Blacks raises hackles with some Indigenous people who don't understand why we would want to call ourselves Indigenous since we are not Indigenous, per se, except for those of us, like myself, who do carry Indigenous ancestry, too.
1: Right, right. Because those two communities were forced together quite often, right?
0: Yeah, they were. There was a lot of interconnection, intermarriage, Mm -hmm. uh, and so on between the Mi'kmaq people in Nova Scotia and the African population arriving out of slavery or resistance to slavery. And we, and we were often positioned next to each other. We found common cause with each other, and we also shared a lot of cultural attributes, the drumming, for instance, basket weaving, basket making, and the shared experience of trying to survive versus an in, in empowered white supremacist ideological practices. So we had to make a common cause. And that's not to say that Mi'kmaq people did not have it worse than Africadians did, to use my word. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm sure that they did. At the same time, I do also think it's, it's difficult for us to get into a competition about who's more oppressed and so on, because at the end of the day, we were both at the bottom of every single scale that matters.
1: Yeah. As I mentioned, you're, 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 both your families, your mom's and your dad's families are deeply rooted in the african community there, but also very different. And you, and you were born yourself in your county in the Annapolis Valley, which is a gorgeous part of Nova Scotia, um, in Windsor Plains, which was the black community there. And I'm just, can you describe a bit about w- what that life was like?
0: Oh, David, you know, this is one of the great things about being Africadian, african Nova Scotian. Our culture, our community, despite the oppression, despite the racism and so on, grew up our ancestors too. I, I, I know I can speak for them. No matter what the oppression and the racism and the apartheid and the segregation and the police injustice and blah blah blah, blah the poverty and the disease and everything. What made our communities special is the fact that we had communities. You know, you had neighbors who had the same struggles you had, who had who, had this, who could share their resources with you who shared your faith, who attended the same church, who were related to you. And and most of us are pretty pretty much related to each other because it was a pretty small group of people who arrived over those 80 years or so of the initial settlement. Uh, so to get to the point here, we had land, we had homes, we had houses, right? And you could go and drop in on your neighbors and you would stay over at their place. They come over and stay at your place. Because of segregation, because when people would be visiting Nova Scotia, coming from away, from the U.S. or from Ontario, Upper Canada, of course, mm-hmm. from a Nova Scotian point of view, it's all Upper Canada all right. <laughs> or Ontario. So people coming from from these places to
1: Nova Scotia,
0: if they were black, would most likely end up having to billet with with uh, folks in the community or with relatives and so on. Right. Uh, so what I'm trying to get here was that, and they had land now. This is one of the great contradictions of the colonial policies of uh, racist uh, segregation apartheid settlement. They made sure to give our ancestors the poorest lands so that we would become a community of cheap labor, which is how they saw us, how they wanted to use us, and if we weren't interested in being cheap labor, then we should get up and go someplace else, as far as Nova Scotian governments were concerned, and settler society was concerned. but. It was land. And we got to remember that these first settlers, so to speak, in fact, I'm not going to call them settlers because they had no choice in where they were put. Mm -hmm. Uh, They did not arrive as empowered people being given the best of the stolen land available. They were not. They were given the worst of the stolen land available. And they had no say in it. But they had arrived with nothing. These were people who were ex-slaves, who were fleeing slavery or who, in, in fact, arrived as slaves. So they had nothing. So when the government said 200 years ago, here's your rotten piece of land, and laughed at them for accepting it, yeah. for having no choice but to accept that rotten piece of land, all of a sudden, they understood that they now own something. They owned a piece of property. When you're a slave, you have no property. You don't own anything. You don't own your children, for crying out loud. You don't own, you don't own anything. So all of a sudden, you're in a situation where Because you're now free, you can actually have your spouse, your wife and husband to stay with you, not be sold away. You have your children with you, and you're under your own roof. Under your own roof. You got a little tiny backyard. You got a little tiny front yard. But hey, it's your tiny front yard. It's your tiny backyard. And no matter how much the outer world is laughing at you and calling you fools and you're poor and you're illiterate and so on, you've got a sense of, of, of dignity because these are, these are your four walls. That's your roof, right? These are your children sleeping in, in your beds that you have provided for them under your roof. And all of a sudden, you have the beginnings of a consciousness yeah. of dignity and yeah. humanity and empowerment. No matter how disenfranchised you are, according to Stats Canada, you're disenfranchised, marginalized, you're poor, illiterate, blah, blah, blah. But you have a home and then your neighbors have homes. And all of a sudden you have a community and then you've got a church to anchor it. So this is a long answer again to your great question. But the beauty of having a place like Three Mile Plains or a place like Weymouth Falls or a place like North Preston and East Preston and Cherry Brook and Lake Loon and Beachville and Africville when it existed was that you had a community of people who could share child rearing, who could share. Uh, of their produce, whatever it was they were able to grow, whatever it was they were able to hunt, whatever it was they were able to fish, uh, and so on, and and uh, and keep life and limb together, uh, and and also create a culture of music, and worship and song, and 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 this is the best part of all to have a sense of the beauty, the pastoralness of that of that nature to see the sunrise over Bedford Basin. here in Africa. You can't buy that you can't you can't purchase that but you there you are with your with your home on the edge of halifax on bedford basin you're watching the sun come up over it every day right that's that's priceless priceless and then you're a baptist you want to have your baptism ceremonies you go down into into bedford basin yeah. you go down into the, the nearest river uh and you're all dressed in your white robes and you go down you get dunked in the water you get baptized you get the spirit to come back out you're clapping, people are singing and so on, the, the tambourines are being beaten. And all of a sudden, you know, you're, you, you've got this distinct right. lifestyle right. that is linked to where you actually live.
1: And your mom's kind of proof of the empowerment you're talking about, isn't she? Because she came from that environment and got herself through teacher's college and was pretty progressive. She ran her own schools. She was a very progressive teacher and obviously raised some some pretty dynamic kids and as well on top of all of that as well you know uh, but then she moved to the city and well she met your father and you, you came along and you guys moved to the city and the city side is your father's experience, isn't it? And your father's family is pretty incredible from a whole sort of different realm and and that they were really pillars of society sort of even beyond the black community in Nova Scotia and white, right back in the early 20th century. Can you describe the White family for yeah. us?
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, of course, I, I knew all about the uh, uh, the White family in a sense as a boy, my brothers and I growing up, because our great aunt, my father's aunt, uh, Portia White, uh, his mother's sister, was Canada's first international Black star. I like to time it this way. She was Oscar Peterson before Oscar Peterson was right. Oscar Peterson. Yeah, uh, that's the best way to put it for those who may not know much about her, uh, because she had her period of great fame through the 1930s into the first half of the 1940s, and then difficulties with her throat took her from the concert stage.
1: Right, she was a soprano, is that right? contralto. She- uh, contralto, oh, right? And and she did a whole repertoire
0: of European art songs, but then also spirituals and of course a few opera areas. And she also sang jazz. Um, and and uh, she was a big enough star uh, in Canada, in Nova Scotia, that that uh, uh, the Nova Scotia Talent Trust, which turned 75 years old this year, was created to support her career
1: Wow! Um, huh. 75 years ago. Yeah, it's the same year as Viola Desmond is yeah. getting hold yeah. out of a movie theater. It's a, yeah, I mean, that's that, the contradictions right there, isn't it? It's yeah, incredible.
0: absolutely. Absolutely tremendous contradictions, and, and that was partly what I was also trying to get at in this in this memoir was on the one hand, yes, there's pernicious discrimination and prejudice, and so and on the other hand, um, especially in terms of the state, uh, I mean the province, the government, and and the upper crust structures, because it is an, an elitist society, a hierarchical society, oh, yeah. so. But, the way it could work is that, okay, the lower echelons of society could be bigoted and prejudiced and so on, and you have to suffer. On the other hand, the elite, the establishment, the upper crust could afford to do the noblesse oblige. Thing, right. Right? right. Well, you are really gifted black people or Negroes or colored people. So, you know, we're going to make some space for you, right? And so you can be the role models and exemplars and so on. And, So I don't want to take anything away from my white family relatives uh, who were phenomenal and are phenomenal people. Mm -hmm. And just to give you a sense of that and our listeners a sense of that, my great-grandfather, William Andrew White, who actually is Dr. Captain Reverend William Andrew White Jr., was born the son of former slaves in 1874, Virginia.
1: Wow.
0: Uh, But only nine years after the Civil War. Only nine Civil War ended. In the yeah. United States, and so he's growing up uh, at you know the end of Reconstruction and what historians describe as the nadir, uh, the lowest point of race relations in the United States. Uh, uh, bar none, it was the it was the most atrocious time yeah. uh, to be black, uh, to be Negro in the United States. It was right after Reconstruction ended, and with the rise of the Ku Klux Klan and, and
1: Jim and Crow all those, laws are coming in. And,
0: yeah. Jim Crow laws and so on. It was just horrible. So here's this gentleman who grows up, and, and, uh, William Andrew White, who says to himself, I'm going to be the first black millionaire. <laughs> you know, that's, that's my great-grandfather, and I'm going to be the first black millionaire to show everybody you know, what we're capable of, right? The son of former slaves, I'm going to be the first black millionaire. Yeah. But then he hears the call. He gets the call from Christ. He, he uh, uh, becomes a Christian, becomes a believer. And he goes off to a Bible college uh, in Virginia, yeah. where he meets uh, a white Canadian woman um, who's also a Baptist, and, and uh, she's at the same college. And she knows about Nova Scotia. She knows about the black community in Nova Scotia. So she says to him, uh, William Andrew, you should go to Nova Scotia, Canada, because there are black people there, basically black Americans, you know, several generations removed. But they could use you, you you know, you could be an important uh, leader and pastor for them. So he says, okay. And so he promptly, uh, after he graduates from uh, Wayland Seminary in Virginia, Richmond, Virginia, he's off to uh, Nova Scotia, where he uh, becomes a student, one of the first black students at Acadia University at the uh, uh, late uh, uh, 19th century Victorian era. Uh, And he gets his uh, B.A. um, and graduates. Uh, I think he was the third black to graduate from Acadia University, which in those days was the Baptist University in Nova Scotia. He comes out of that university. He has a B.A. He's now uh, one of the very, very, very few educated, highly educated black people in Nova Scotia. Uh, He marries... um, um, uh, woman whose surname is also White, so yeah. she goes from Miss White to Mrs. White without having to change anything, or per se, except the, the original uh, honorific.
1: Mm-hmm. And and, uh, uh, and then he begins um,
0: to basically build capacity for leadership in uh, the local Africadian, use my word, or Black Nova Scotian community through the Baptist Church especially, and becomes recognized very quickly as As being a phenomenal speaker, orator. By the time of his death, he had a radio show uh, that reached as far south as Boston and had an audience of one million. Wow. One million people listening in on Sundays
1: to his great voice. And along the way, between
0: becoming the leader of Black Nova Scotians and the leader of African Canadians at the time keeping in mind that, that Nova Scotia had the largest black population in Canada up until the 1960s. Uh, so he was de facto leader of all black Canadians. But then also, uh, he became the first black non-commissioned
1: officer in uh, the British Army right. uh, during the Great War. Yeah. Uh,
0: when He led the number two construction battalion.
1: It's a very famous battalion, yeah. Yeah. The only black uh, battalion in the First World War representing Canada, is that right?
0: Yeah, Absolutely. <clears throat> And so then, but, you know, he's not satisfied with with those kinds of achievements. He also is busy, uh, along with his wife, in raising a a stellar family. So, of course, Portia becomes the renowned uh, singer internationally, Uh, the uh, command performance before Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, Um, and, and, of course, the town hall, New York, Manhattan, triumphant... Uh, concerts and so on. And the photograph by Karsh, oh my God, yeah, you know, she so yeah. was just like a household name and so on, of course, in our household, but other households too. Um, mm-hmm. and 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 then her brother Jack uh, becomes one of the leaders of the Ontario Federation of Labor. Right. Another brother of hers, Bill becomes uh, the first black to seek federal office under this under uh, you know, to, to try to enter the House of Commons get elected, that was in the, the 1940s, and that was Bill White, who later became an officer in the Order of Canada, and a, a composer as well, and other siblings who were uh, greats, uh, who were also wonderful singers, gifted in music. Oh, another, I almost forgot, another brother, Lauren, Lauren White, who sang along on Sing Along Jubilee with a certain Anne Murray, uh, who oh, was no also way. part of the yeah. cast before, of course, she went on to her great international stardom. So in my childhood... Growing up, I had my great uncle, Lauren, who's my vice principal at, at the junior high school I attended. There's Portia White, who unfortunately passed away when I was eight years old. Uh, but nevertheless, she was a huge presence in the in the family. Right. And yeah. so, you know, and of course, there's the knowledge of... Uh, uh, William Andrew
1: yeah. White. Just curious about William Andrew White, and and how much black empowerment would have been part of his sphere, and how much Marcus Garvey and that kind of writing would have figured in, or was that not <laughs> at all?
0: Oh my golly! Uh, woo! That's another great question, and and I have to say that given the the kind of research I was able to do for the for this memoir, and, and articles and things I've written about uh, uh, members of the of the white family. Uh, my father's maternal uh, relatives uh, and so on, I have to say that i've come around to understanding that Captain White, William Andrew, was an amalgam of different notions of philosophy and and mm-hmm. uh, theology um, and and um, so there was a little bit of Marcus Garvey. That, that he could uh, embrace in, in the sense of, of, of uplift, self uplift, uh, racial uplift, that blacks uh, had to uplift themselves. Negroes, as we recall them, would have to uplift ourselves as much as we could also ask for assistance from well-meaning white people who would see that it was in everybody's interest that all peoples be treated equally in a democratic society. Uh, So there was a little bit of Garvey in him, and he preached a sermon on race consciousness in 1922, which is the Garvey moment, right here where I am now in Toronto. Uh, So that's uh, one side of things. The other side of it was a Booker T. Washington accommodationist approach. Now, these approaches are actually antithetical. uh, Booker T. Washington and Marcus Garvey would not have seen eye to eye very much at all, uh, because Booker T. Washington's approach was, that that black people really had to uh, essentially uh, content ourselves, our ancestors should content themselves with being servants uh, and, uh, to white people until we could become educated and then could begin to truly demand equality in, in our treatment and civil rights and, and so forth. Um, there was a lot of pushback against that idea. But but the value of the accommodationist approach was that you had a job. Okay, it was a low level job. It's a servant's job. It's a right. servile job. It's a, Maybe it's a, even a humiliating job, but you got a job. And so you get to earn some money, you bank your money, you start the long, slow climb. Towards middle class respectability mm-hmm. by starting at the bottom, so so that was Booker T. Washington's message uh, to Black Americans, especially. But it was very very influential because a lot of white people supported it. We're right. saying you're right. You know what? You should be at our servants. Yes. <laughs> at least at least for a generation, maybe two or three. Yeah. Uh, so they put a lot of money behind Booker T. Washington. He he was somebody who could walk on water. He had the money. He had the millions just flowing into the Tuskegee Institute. Uh, so my great grandfather could see that there were that there were benefits definitely uh, to basically playing up to white notions of noblesse oblige of of uh, charity paternalism uh, you know we'll give you some some crumbs from the big cake over here uh, and and when you show that you are able that you have become educated to our level then we might be able to give you some larger slices of the cake. But it's good that you understand that you have to grow into your citizenship. You have to grow into deserving uh, equal treatment. Um, But that was a very, very popular message in the early 20th century, except for um, black radicals, intellectuals uh, like Marcus Garvey, like W.E.B. Du Bois, who totally... Uh, 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 fought against that idea because they realized that all it was going to do was 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 trap uh, black people into being hewers of, of wood, drawers of water forever, 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 and that we would never get equal treatment because we would never be seen as deserving equal treatment, but would just become a race of servants forever. I think, you know, that he had both those strands. There was an accommodationist side and there was also A Black Consciousness Racial Uplift
1: Sign. Hi, we're going to take a quick break from this episode so I can plug a very important event, the Royal Canadian Geographical Society's online silent auction. You can visit the auction site by going to rcgsauction.ca. There you can scroll through the site to see all the amazing items available, everything from exotic trips led by RCGS explorers to autographed books, art, clothing, and more. All the money raised from the auction supports vital society programming. To bid on auction items, please visit www.rcgsauction.ca. Bidding closes Sunday, November 21st at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And now, back to our podcast. You paint such a rich picture of Africadia. I mean, the book, and I hope you don't mind this comparison, it reminded me of Evangelist Ashes by Frank McCourt. Oh, I mean, he grew up obviously very poor in Catholic Ireland, a fairly oppressed childhood. And, but it's an ode to something that's gone away now. And I'm wondering to what extent this is an ode to an Africadia that no longer exists. And what's replaced it?
0: Oh my, that is such a hard question. And it's one that haunts me. Because I do feel that I benefited greatly from growing up within what was still, by Nova Scotian standards, numerous communities that were pretty solid and pretty black, you know. They were they were always mixed to a certain extent, but but they were genuinely black communities, and and that it was great as a teenager, you know. And I, in my uh, courting moments, in my wooing moments, uh, it was it was great to be able to go from Windsor to. Uh, 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 Digby, uh, Lakeel, uh, to places like Jordan, Jordantown, Hammond's Plains, and Middleton or North Street, and mm-hmm. all kinds of places. Weymouth Falls, all these beautiful, gorgeous young black women of every kind of color right. and, and configuration were crying out loud. And to know that we were a network, that we were a family, right. an extended family of communities right. that had survived for 200 years and my fear now to come to your question directly is that yeah that may not exist or may not exist as powerfully as it did in my youth 40 years ago 50 years ago uh and so on and so what's replaced it it's difficult to say since i have not lived in nova scotia since 1987 mm-hmm. um although i i have made before covid bc i used to make Frequent trips back to to do different things and and see my relatives, most of whom are still in Nova Scotia, but mm. I would say that that the rural communities have dwindled. Uh, right. Uh, even Three Mile Plains, Windsor Plains, uh, doesn't have the black population it used to have, mm. um, and and the fact is now Nova Scotia is a peninsula. Halifax is definitely a peninsula, which means that land uh, has become, especially in Halifax. Pricier, and as the value of land is growing up in Halifax uh, and the suburbs, gentrification has moved in, which means that poorer black people have often seen that they had no choice except to sell uh, land that had been in their families for generations right. uh, and move to other places. So, I am sorry and regretful that those kinds of changes have taken place. There still is an Africadian culture. There still are Africadians. There are still Africadian communities. Uh, and I think there always will be, uh, praise God. On the other hand, uh, the kind of solidity that we had around the mainland of Nova Scotia uh, is not so much present anymore. And I think that's that's a, a detrimental to all of Nova Scotia because Despite all the history of oppression and hardship, black Nova Scotians are Nova Scotians. You know, we are a a founding culture, so to speak, Mm -hmm. and created a specific culture with our own forms of speech, which grammarians or linguists, I should say, study Uh, African Nova Scotian vernacular English, to give it the academic title. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is different than African American English and different from other kinds of English. Uh, and our own our own form of, of the Baptist uh, version of Christianity, the African Baptist Church, founded in, in, uh, at Granville Mountain, Nova Scotia, 1853. right And so and as a writer, I, I love the fact that I can, I can think about people playing profit for crying loud, like Richard Preston, Riding his horse all up and down the Annapolis Valley and the Cobequid Valley and around the, the Bay of Fundy Coast and the South Shore, Nova Scotia, planting churches everywhere he went. Planting yeah. churches everywhere he went. <laughs> and they called him, they called him the Apostle to the African Race. That's Nova Scotia. Only Nova Scotia could you have somebody come from Virginian slavery, end up becoming the Apostle to the African Race. He actually went off to London. To get the laying on of hands of the West London Baptist Association, right? So when he came back to Nova Scotia, he was the most honored Baptist in Nova Scotia. Black, white, brown, red, yellow. He was the most honored Baptist in Nova Scotia when he came back uh, vis-a-vis all the white Baptists, because he had the blessing of the West London, the most important Baptist association in the British Empire. And this guy, because of course he was contested by white Baptists, to say, oh, you can't build your own church. We don't want you to to be part of our church, but we don't like the idea of you going out there, Richard, and building your own church. That's wrong. You should just continue to suffer segregation in our churches, please. And Richard said, he didn't say it, but I'll say it. Hell no. (laughs) I'm not going to put up with a segregated church. I'm going to go to London. I'm going to get the blessing of the West London Baptist Association. I'm going to come back to Nova Scotia and I'm going to build 24 churches all around the mainland. So there, see if you can top that.
1: Yeah. Roots run deep. (laughs) Yeah. You've been very generous with your time. I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I do have a question I ask all my guests and um, I'm kind of hoping the answer is somewhere in Africadia in this, in this question. Um, is what is? Do you have a favorite place in Canada, a place that's your happy place that maybe you go to when you need to make yourself smile or that you just love to be at and feel at peace at?
0: Well, you know uh, that uh, my mother's family seat, Three Mile Plains, Five Mile Plains, Newport Station, Green Street, Windsor Plains, to, to name the whole thing as a collective. Uh, yeah. You know that's it you know the 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 first place I recognized uh as being where I belonged you know like there's there's nothing more powerful than that you know you you're you're always no matter where you go no matter who you are you're always you are always what you were first where you when you first drew breath you know, if you if you stayed there any length of time and even though I didn't grow up there. I grew up in Halifax, but Windsor was always uh, three-mile plains, five-mile plains was always the place that that represented bounty, you know, Uh, the the outdoors, the great outdoors, you know, the the forests, uh, the gardens, uh, uh, the the farm animals, uh, the train going by, you know, It, it was. A place of like butter and and milk and berries and hazelnuts and and stuff right out of the ground, potatoes and carrots and squash and lettuce and and all the rest of it. And we come right out of the ground, and then it would be on my grandparents' table. You you can't beat that, you know. It's not the same. You can't you know go into a grocery store and grab something off the shelf. It's just not the same. <laughs> so and then of course you go down the street. And there's a Baptist church, and everybody's singing. And they're, and they're the people from the community, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and, then you, and you get the music. It, you know, I, one of the strongest memories I have, going, going back to boyhood, is of two cowboys, black cowboys, except that they're, they were walking up Green Street. And this is like the mid-1966, 67. Uh, they were mm-hmm. Hamiltons, these guys, these, these young men. And they and they were they had the horses they were dressed up like cowboys for crying along but their skin color because the sun was I think was setting was late summer uh, uh, or late summer night evening and the sun was setting and, and the glow of the of the red sun on their particular mixed color skin made them look like the color of orange pineapple ice cream that's what I was thinking when I saw them but these are like two black, brown cowboys coming up the street. You can't get that anywhere.
1: <laughs> that's you a great vision to hold on to. Else. Yeah. Amazing. Right. Yeah. Amazing. And you still own land there.
0: Yeah, I do. It's only three quarters of an acre, David. Only three quarters of an acre. But that,
1: that's more than most people have in Toronto, George.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You know, it's 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 so important to me psychologically, and that land goes back probably to 1813. Nice. Probably 1813, right? The black refugees, my mother's side, were they were black refugees and Cherokee people who ended up settling uh, in the, in that part of the province, right? Uh, and and uh, so and it's been passed down in the family. So I plan to pass it down to my daughter, who lives in Montreal. So I hope that uh, she might have some some interest in it. If not, then I'll probably pass it on to the church.
1: Right.
0: Um, but uh, yeah, I, I want it. I'd like it to stay in the family. I really would. I'm so, so glad I've, I've got my own anthills. <laughs> my own, my own anthills and, and thorny bushes, blackberry bushes and, and whatnot. And crab apple trees. Oh my golly.
1: Sounds funny. Yeah. <laughs> Little bit of Eden, yeah. George Elliot Clark, thank you so much for your time. And can you tell us the name of the book again?
0: Yes, the name of the book is "Where Beauty Survived," an Africadian memoir, uh, published by Knopf Canada, and available at all the right bookstores.
1: All the right places. Yeah, <laughs> I, I highly recommend reading it. I really enjoyed it. So go pick that up. Great, thank you, George.
0: Thank you, David.
1: I hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you did like it and want to help us reach as big an audience as possible, please give us a five-star rating and write a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It makes a big difference. Thank you. And be sure to subscribe too so you don't miss future episodes. That's it for this edition of Explore. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, when we'll explore again, I'm David McGuffin.
0: I think right now
1: we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling you. We right have now. Simpson about June 10th, with a fire brigade consisting of a number of yacht boats, each man by 10 voyageurs. For us, it means that he knew or history. is very strong. we little low over every inch of the country that it could be. We're hoping
0: that he would fire at it. no oh, I guess so.
1: but first for Canada.